My first year in sales, where I went from never having done it before to number one in the country, I sold more in my first five months than anybody else had sold in a full year. And I went zero to hero, and man, I've never had a year as fun as that year. The CEO would bump into me in the hall and say, hey Mike, how much money are you gonna make this year? Let's go to lunch and talk about it. I wanna come along with you on your, the next one you close. The senior executives would be begging me to ride along so they could watch me close, right? But that was the greatest year of my life. Financially, emotionally, everything. It was transformational. Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Mike Bosworth. Mike is one of the true legends in the sales profession. He's the author and creator of Solution Selling and the creator and co-author of Customer-Centric Selling. I enjoy it every time Mike comes on the show because I learned something new and today is no exception. In this conversation from the archives of the Sales Enablement Podcast, Mike and I talk about what Mike sees as a growing problem in sales, discovery resistance. Discovery resistance is resistance to being questioned, pushed back, verbalized or not, from a buyer you would like to get to know. Discovery resistance originates with that 99% of buyers who have come away from their previous encounters with salespeople feeling coerced, pressured, manipulated, or flat out pushed into doing something they did not want to do. This is really critical for individual contributors to understand, as well as for sales leaders. And Mike and I dive into the two key traits of the top 20% sellers that help them avoid discovery resistance. And we also dig into why the primary reason for missed sales goals in 1995 is the same as it is in 2022, which is not very comforting. It has to do with why sellers try to sell before they truly understand the buyer's problem. Okay, we'll dive into all this and much, much more. But before we get to Mike, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also give us your feedback about how we're doing by leaving us a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Mike, welcome back to the show. Uh, it's always a pleasure, Andy, to hang out with you. Uh, there are very few people in the world that I see things as clearly with as you. Oh, thank you. Likewise. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, we're going to uh, talk about a recent article you've written about uh, discovery resistance, which, yeah, is the topic I <laughs> I bring up a lot because, you know, salespeople have this this idea that just because they ask somebody a question that somebody's going to answer it. Right. And they're under no obligation to answer the question. Well, I think the basic root problem, because if you think about it, if you go to a doctor for the first time, as a patient, you don't have any discovery resistance. They start asking you diagnostic questions, and after a couple of minutes, you say, wow, she's pretty smart. But you had no resistance to asking, answering her questions. If you went in for a consultation right. for an IP lawyer, they'd be asking you questions from the first 10 seconds. You'd be fine with it. But if it's a salesperson... Salespeople come, I kind of call it original sin. It's, um, <laughs> it's the slime they carry of all the shitty experiences you and everybody else have had with salespeople over their whole, whole life. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that concept of original sin is, <laughs> with regards to sales is, is an interesting one because, uh, you know, being salesy in a negative way that people perceive it, that's not, I don't believe that's innate behavior. I think that's learned behavior. It's learned right? behavior. And there's such a succession of high pressure. I mean, God, when I was a young salesperson at Xerox, close early, close often, you know, uh, it was just such yep. a high pressure thing they taught us. They taught us to to close early, close often, and ask directed questions, and control, and, you know, the whole sales training industry of, of 30, 40 years ago was ruining the buyer experience, in my opinion. Well, but do you think it's any better today? I mean, my my belief and my experience is that it, 
it really hasn't changed substantially since when you were originally trained or I was originally trained. I know, but I think today, finally figuring out a way to deal with it, I have a market opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to get into that, but I, yeah, yeah, I, I, um, I, I get back to sort of the first point I made was just that. Yeah, you don't have an obligation as a buyer. A buyer has no obligation to answer your question. So, and you sort of you talk about this in the article is is there's certain sort of preconditions that have to be met, but one is. Yeah, you do come in at sort of a disadvantage because people come up as you enter a sales conversation. Vast majority of people have their defenses up. Well, we if we're out in a retail store and they come up and say, "Can I help you?" Ninety nine percent you say, "No, I'm just looking. I'm browsing. I'm good." Right. That's discovery resistance. Yeah. Well, it's 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 also persuasion resistance, right? Because the assumption is that if they acknowledge it, that somebody's going to try to persuade them to do something. And pressure them to do something that they didn't don't really want to do, and it's it's really on, on the Daniel Pink book to sell as human. Did you see that word cloud he put up? Right. The number one thing is pressure. Pushy, pushy, and pressure. People, it's synonymous. And uh, when we used to do all those solution selling classes, we had a faux pas list of words and phrases that, yeah. if you're in sales, you should eliminate, and you know, right. the, the, the phrase, like you. Andy, we worked with other people just like you. Yeah. Just like you, yes. Or we worked with organizations just like yours. And we know you have, we have our, our solution, well, da-da-da-da-da for you. And, well, it's over as soon as they start reminding their current potential buyer, their suspect, of all the asshole salespeople she's dealt with in her whole life. It's over. Well, and that, that particular phrase is interesting because you see that now trained in the sellers saying, well, when you say that, that's a form of social proof, you know, that, that the buyer's not alone. There are other people just like them that you've worked with. And I'm with you. I sort of always see that as a trigger as like, oh, yeah, here's a line. Well, it's, it's because... Xerox PSS and power-based selling and Sandler and all these training companies have been teaching people to use that phrase. And at one time, you know, when it first came out, it probably didn't alienate that, very, that many people. But now it's such common sales vocabulary that even if it's sincere, it, it's such a turnoff to people. Right. Well, let me ask you a question because... Yeah, we've we've gone down this this path about what we call salesy behavior, and I I always like to say, you know, what's what's the one question a customer will never ask you, and that's could you be more salesy? Um, <laughs> is yet yeah, we train people to be we train we train people to be salesy generally in sales, and it's like these behaviors that buyers don't like. It's like we're at a management level, we're continuing to sanction them. And it's like, why do we do that? We know they don't work. I think it all comes from management's need to be in control. They need to have control over their visibility to their revenue stream. And so they want their salespeople to control these prospects and make sure they get them closed by the end of the quarter. And all that pressure starts coming down, causing the frontline salespeople to be even bigger assholes than they would have been without that pressure. <laughs> well, and I think, I think there's a lot to that, right? Is, is, yeah, all the crap flows downhill. And at the end of the day, somebody says, well, under this much pressure, this is the way I'm going to behave. Yeah. So is, is there a cure for that though? Well, the cure that I'm prescribing these days is, Pure curiosity and pure envy. And so uh, if I'm on an pure, airplane... Pure, P-E-R. P-E-E-R. Yeah, pure. Okay. Pure. So if I'm on an airplane with you and, and sitting next to you and I say, Andy, what do you do? And you say, I'm a podcaster. And I say, oh, can I share a quick story with you about another podcaster I've been working with? What are you going to say? 99% uh, of people say, yes. say sure, because in 10 seconds, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're, we're asking them if they're curious about one of their peers. 
And in the in the B2B buying world, the pure curiosity is real high. You know, when these salespeople are out selling big ticket, intangible, conceptual, hard to explain, you know. In other words, right. in the complex solution environment, the odds are pretty high that your intelligence tells you that the person you're about to reach out to or call on or try and initiate a bicycle, the odds are pretty high they have a problem that you've helped one of their peers already solve. Mm-hmm. So well, and, and so let's take a. I wanted to take a step back from the peer peer curiosity because I think there's you set the stage in the article, which is that one of the reasons you're you're putting this forward as a way to help we'll call it the the bottom 80%, right? Not to categorize people, but you say that you believe the top 20% of sellers that they have two key traits that the bottom 80% or the other 80% lack, which is a the ability to emotionally connect and build trust with strangers in a short period of time. Yep. And <laughs> the intuitive ability not <laughs> to just fall into salesy mode until the right. buyers, you know, sort of demonstrate that they're open to it. Right, right. The, the the intuition to facilitate the buyer's buying cycle instead of imposing their sell cycle onto them. And if you look right. at most salespeople, they're imposing the corporate sales model onto their suspects, their potential buyers. But it's, you know, first we're going to do this and then we're going to do this. And by the way, are you going to, you the person who's going to make the decision? And, you know, what's all that control? How much money do you have? Yeah. Well, and it's, but again, that gets back to training, right? Because this is the way we train people is that. Right. What their job is, their job, we tell sellers, basically, your job is to persuade somebody to buy your product. Right. And, and. That's not really what the buyer's looking to do. The buyer's looking to make a decision about how to improve their business. And But even if you think at a retail level, I, I, maybe it's jeans, but uh, all my brothers are in sales. I guess my mom died early and I taught them all the business. And right. one of my brother's daughter, when she was 18, she got a retail sales job at a men's clothing store. And, you know, she was instructed, well, when somebody comes in, go up to them and bat your eyelashes and ask them what they're looking for and ask them if you can help. She quickly realized that there was way too much um, discovery resistance, if you will, for that. And her intuition taught her a little trick. And within the first month, she was the number one sales rep in this men's store. She'd, She'd wait if you came in, she'd wait until you went over to the Tommy Bahama rack because mm-hmm. you're a middle-aged guy with a big gut. <laughs> and you want your shirt to hang out, yeah. yeah. And then, she, right, I mean, Tommy Bahama really helped the middle-aged fat man a lot <laughs> because those shirts just hang down straight, right? Right. So anyway, she waits until he takes one Tommy Bahama shirt off the rack and then she kind of eases over and says, you know, my dad's got that shirt in yellow and it's his favorite shirt. Wow. Done. Now, she did this intuitively. They didn't teach her right. to do that. Right. But boom, she, she, with that little intro, she was eliminating retail discovery resistance. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. No, first of all, I think it's, it's genius on her part. Uh, I started off selling women's shoes in high school and uh, J.C. Penny and yeah, I didn't come up with anything nearly as nearly as smart as that. <laughs> God, I would have loved a chance to try that, Andy. I'm boy. I, now you're now you're my idol. That you were as a young man, you got to sell women's shoes. Oh my God, I don't know if I could have stood it. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I just I basically did just what people asked me to do pretty much at that point, right? I mean, I, I yeah, went yeah. through this period thinking that early on, you know, I've been trained as, you know, guide them to a decision, guide the buyer to a decision. And, uh, yeah, I found actually I was more successful if I was just uh, doing it because they came in with their minds made up by and large. So You learned early on to be a buying facilitator. 
to help them yes. buy. Because people love to buy shoes. I love to buy shoes. And if you love to buy shoes and you go into a store that's got pretty good inventory, like Nordstrom Shoe Department, I used to go nuts in, and then a salesperson would come up, usually a cute female, who try just try and say, you know, what are you thinking about? You know, what's your shoe inventory right now? Are there any gaps? You know, but they they helped me buy. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I was I was marginally helpful as a sixteen year old helping people buy women buy shoes, but it's mostly winter boots actually, as in Wisconsin. So uh, okay, well, yeah, all right. everybody well, had to come in with their boots. My but, esteem but went it, down a little bit on that, but okay, yeah, but, okay, <laughs> I'll I'll suffer that. So I was thinking high heels initially. <laughs> No, you know, it's just Madison, Wisconsin is, is I was filling in, you know, during winter months or, you know, extra holiday salespeople and yeah. salesperson. And yeah, my first day on the job was a huge snowstorm outside and literally, you know, seemed like every woman in a 35 square mile radius of, uh, of the store showed up to buy their winter boots for the season. And, uh, yeah, yeah I learned, I learned really quickly as, is. uh, yeah, facilitate. And help them narrow in. And boy, if you can help them pick something in 30 seconds for something like that, they're on it, right? Yeah. Well, was, the interesting thing I learned is that, that you know, people, I had no idea this at the time, is, you know, your shoe size varies sort of the type of shoe you're trying to wear. And so you know, I'd measure yeah. people and say, well, you know, you're a six and a half. And they say, no, in a boots, I'm an eight. Well, it says six and a half. <laughs> and it took me a few times to sort of get over the fact that, like, okay, I wasn't doing a bad job by not insisting they buy a six and a half. Or you go to the back room and you bring a six and a half and an eight out. Well, yeah. And help them discover, well, you know, that eight's too big. <laughs> no, usually they were right. Yeah, they were, people knew what their shoe size was. So, all right. So. Well, okay. Yeah, yeah. Either way. Yeah. But, so let's talk about the. Yeah, again, we've got these two traits, and I, I think you narrowed it down. I think this is one that, you know, there's been this sort of wave of people writing on LinkedIn these days about how, you know, relationships aren't important in sales. And and I keep saying, well, first of all, they're defining those as friendships, which is crazy. Yeah, try to set people straight and say, no, we're really talking about the ability to connect with another human being and build trust. And I love the way you you – yeah, I'll separate that out as a trait of top sellers because I absolutely believe it is. It's just the ability to connect with another human being and build trust in a relatively short time is what sets consistently good sellers apart from the rest. I will say, though, in defense of their position, is if I come across a buyer who is an expert buyer, they know exactly what they're looking for, and all they're using me for is to see, do I have one in stock? What are the prices and stuff like that? Then the need for a relationship goes way down. Absolutely. And you could almost have an intelligent website take that salesperson out because you have an expert buyer. Right. Yeah, so, you're creating friction at that point. And, I mean, the, I and, and Yeah. But for most of us, for anybody's... For anybody selling solutions, complex, pricey stuff to the enterprise, boy, you got to be careful. It's it's a different type of a, a buying facilitation, if you will, on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you need to be able to connect with someone. You need to be able to build a level of trust <laughs> to the point where, yeah, in my experience, and not just mine, but many others as well, is, is that... When the customer, even an enterprise sale, yeah, I think back to one eight-figure deal I sold that, that yeah, I was working for a startup. We had no track record, no brand name going in against you know, multi-billion-dollar right. organizations. And we won these huge deals. They're almost as large as the revenue of the company. And they were buying largely because of me and... CEO of the yeah. company who was our sort of technology. They're buying because of us, you know, the individuals, not because of the company. Your trust, your connection yes. and your trust. Right. You know, people make emotional decisions for logical reasons. I put that in my book in 1993. I mean, and 
There's no stronger, in my mind, you know, I used to sell first-generation MRP systems. Yes. I would have to get in and get the materials manager to be my sponsor. He or she couldn't buy, but I couldn't make the sale without that person's sponsorship. Right. Right? right? Yep. And so when I would tell that person a story and their discovery resistance would go away when and after a minute i say enough about me andy what's going on here and they say you want to come in and look around well that means the discovery resistance is gone yeah i, I still could screw it up if i get too pushy and right. start using behaviors that other sales it's it's still mine to lose right but yeah well i think that i think there are are milestones throughout a sales process or buying process where, and I think discovery resistance, one of them, I think there's one further down the line where, yeah, in my experience, I always notice there's a point where the customer made the decision or made the choice about how they wanted to solve their problem. And, right. and I always looked at my job as, as almost like I was designing in my solution to their solution, right? Is, is, how do I get them when they make that Absolutely. choice? About right. And so it wasn't about my product. It was about the solution I was selling, how we help them achieve their outcomes. But I knew that I knew when that moment hit in the sales process. Oh, yeah. But it was you were doing no matter how authentic and honest and trustworthy you were trying to be, you were still doing a semi biased diagnosis. Biased <laughs> yes. towards what you do well. Right. Right. I mean, right. if I have a tumor and I go to a surgeon, what's he going to, he's going to want to cut it out. And if I go to a, radi a radiologist, he's going to want to nuke it. And if I go to a oncologist, I guess he's going to poison it. They're all going to define my problem based on their solution. But it's the degree to which you do that, right? I think is the difference is if you, if you think that. Well, it makes you efficient. You know, your your job isn't to be a therapist to go out and hear all their problems. Your your job is to go out and elicit problems that you have something to help them deal with. That's your job. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I phrase it this way. Is, you know, your job in sales is to listen to understand what's the most important thing to the buyer, then help them get it. Yeah, it, it could be biased problem-seeking. I'm looking for people who have this problem because if they do, I've got a really high chance of helping them solve that problem. If I can get them to give up their discovery resistance, to develop a buying vision where I help them with the, I need a way to, right. and then I offer them proof of that vision. And then I help them put together a financial case that's gonna sell their CFO. And then I help them help explain to their IT manager how this thing's going to implement. You know, if I'm doing that, those are all, we, what we try and track with our clients in their pipeline is public displays of trust by the buyer. Mm -hmm. And the those are the milestones. I, when, when they admit a pain to, you, to me as a salesman, when a 48-year-old executive admits a pain to a 28-year-old salesperson, that's a public display of trust. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And we yeah. have to track the rest of them. So when they introduce you to other people on the buying committee, another public display of trust. Mm -hmm. And when they agree to come into your place for a demonstration, a proof demonstration, the fact that they're taking their time and executive time and investigating the details. Now they're lifting up the covers on yours, which they should be doing. That's a public display of trust. So if you think about it, I mean, I've mapped out this enterprise bicycle. I'll send you a screenshot of it if afterwards, just so you can see. And it's a generic one. We take, this is a generic B2B buying mm -hmm. cycle and we, and we try and sequence it according to how people really want to buy. And then we asterisk the public displays of trust along the way. Because uh, you, know, you know how so many companies, they're teaching their salespeople how to line their product up with competitor A and competitor B and competitor C. I think that's such a waste of effort. 
I really yep. do. I agree. Because if you're my buyer, and as long as you continue to earn my trust by giving mm -hmm. me public displays of your trust for me, I don't care who else you're looking at. As long as I believe I have a sincere shot at your business, I'm staying. I'm going to stay for the whole six months if I need to. But if I don't trust you as a salesman, I'm pulling out. Bad news early is good news. Absolutely. Well, I agree 100% on that. Yeah, I, 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 uh, first of all, it's really hard for sellers to learn how to pull the plug because you know, people are so concerned about pipeline coverage ratios and so on. But I've always put yeah, that I mean, on the manager. I said, I say, I say exactly. to managers, your salespeople will never pull a plug on their own. It's your job to ask them the right questions to determine whether this prospect, prospect is being fair with you, giving you an honest shot at the business versus do they want to pull a proposal out of you so they can price negotiate better with the one they already want. Right. Which and I felt most like frontline salespeople, they, they cannot make that decision on their own. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think your point about com competition is certainly aligns with why I felt. I always thought that I wanted the competition to be worried about me, not worry about the competition. So, yeah, I, I focused on just the things that, that you talked about. Is how can I earn these public displays of trust early on? And I do that through you know, giving the buyer something of value that's helping them make progress in their, their buying process. And I set the pace. It didn't matter as you you know, small companies selling it. Well, I like, I like to think that I'm nudging my buyer along. And as long as I stay in harmony with her, and I kind of know after she is curious enough to listen to a story, I'm going to say enough about me, tell me about you. And she's going to do one of mm -hmm. two things. She's either going to say, what do you want to know with her arms folded? Or she's going right. to open up and start talking freely. Well, if her arms are folded, guess what? The discovery resistance is still there. Still there. Absolutely. It's right there after a minute. After, you know, after a minute. Well, but... What will still happen in that environment, though, especially if a seller comes in with a scripted list of questions, you might get answers to those questions, but you're not any closer to understanding the buyer than you were before you started. Even if you get the answers, yeah, no, you're right, because you don't know how to process that. The other uh, thing that big companies are wrestling with with complex solutions is the time from day to hire to solution expertise for new salespeople. And if it's complex, yeah. I see 12 to 24 months before my new salesperson has enough solution expertise to come out. It's just like the surgeon and knowing what they're good at. They need to know right. what they're good at. They, they need to know what problems they are really good at helping solve. And that, that doesn't come right away. Well, and it comes at different points in time for every individual. And and what you see, though, with True. onboarding programs yeah. these days is that everybody sort of fit into this mold, right? We've got a 90-day onboarding program, and, you know, you're expected to be up to speed after 90 days. And to your point, if you're selling a product with any degree of complexity, that's just not going to happen. And to make it even worse, your first 90 days is spent mostly with product marketing where they're pounding all the features, the 100,000 features of the product into your brain, which is going to ruin your buyer's experience because you're going to go out there and, and the only thing you're going to be able to know how to do is say, Andy, can I show you a demo of our, of our solution? That's it. Right. Because they're, they're just teaching them to demo. Yeah, not to problem solve. That's for sure. No, and, no. And, and if I show you 100 features and you say to yourself, well, of those 100 features Mike just showed me, I can only see myself using 13 of them. If you stay that long with me, you're pretty much not going to want to pay my full retail. You're, you're only going to want to pay for the 13% of what I showed you that you need. You're yeah. causing future price objections. I mean... The, the real problem today is enterprises aren't investing in training, as you know. They're hiring people, throwing them out there, and sink or swim. And how do we change that? Because, I mean, 
I've had this conversation with a number of people, and it's like, it seems like, yeah, the most senior levels of a corporation have sort of just decided. Sales, yeah, yeah, it's good enough, right? Yeah, the way we're doing it's good enough. Well, what, what was their adult education in the selling? If you're a CFO or a VP of manufacturing or VP of engineering of a company, you obviously didn't start your career in sales, but now you're a C-level executive. So how did you learn about sales and who did you learn about sales from? And it's only going to be the salespeople your company has hired and the ones that your VP of sales has hired. That's going to be your paradigm of selling. Right. And not going to be good in many cases, not going to be good in many cases. No, I think that's, but that's sort of the bigger topic is, is companies seem reluctant to invest in true sales transformation. And, you know, we say we have this whole thing about, you know, we've got our specialized sales roles and, you know, quote unquote, modern selling. But the fact is that, you know, modern selling is the same old selling just with a layer of technology thrown on top. So, well, and, and what it is, it's, it's not an academic subject, sales. It's a skill. And, you know, 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States, only 200 of them have more than two courses in selling. So even, and, and it's 50%, if you graduate with a bachelor's degree today, it's 50% in the next 20 years, you'll have a stint in sales. Well, yeah. So the colleges and universities aren't preparing these young people to take smart selling roles where they can, you know, I, I do a lot of guest speaking at colleges and universities and I was up at UMD, Minnesota, and most of these kids are just like me at Cal Poly. They're paying their own way through school. They're working a job. Right. They're sleeping at home. They're not living in dorms, right. you know. And I say to these people, uh, how many of you would re like to be able to make some serious money in your 20s. And they all, they all raise their hands. But I say, I, I said, all right, who in your whole life so far have you ever known made serious money in their 20s? Doctors don't make serious money until they're in their 30s. 30s right? Lawyers don't make serious money until they're in their 30s. The only people I've seen, in my experience, who make serious money in their 20s are big ticket enterprise salespeople. And then I tell a story about how I was a keynote at Salesforce a few years ago, and they would announce their top money winner from the previous year. That year, their number one uh, sales rep, Salesforce rep made $4 million. I love that, that a company will pay a salesperson that much because, you know, Absolutely. most won't. IBM, that's why Ross Perot left IBM. Yep. They, he maxed out on January 30th. <laughs> yeah. No, I remember, uh, gosh, when I was an Apple in the sort of early days of Apple, we had a sales guy that, uh, they, they came present him a check for several hundred thousand dollars. Uh, you know, he's selling apples into the education community. And we celebrated it, right? Because it was like, it wasn't the CFO yes. thinking, how do we Celebrated. change that we never have to if do that again? Computer services, we had a bell. Yeah. You wanted people to make those big, the big. We money. had a nautical bell. And anytime anybody closed a deal, they, the sales rep would go in and ring the bell and everybody in the building would come over and congratulate him. Yeah. That's the culture I grew up in. It was fabulous. Yeah, and we don't really. Some cultures, some companies do a good job with that, but yeah, too often it's it's uh, sort of interchangeable cogs in a sales process, and and I, and I think part of it is, again is that we've 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 structured people's understanding of what sales is in such a way that we encourage those types of salesy behaviors, and I think we change the perspective. We're as you perpetuating said, the, the reputation. Part. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I sort of look at it like from a management standpoint. If you're a manager, and we look at you know, the number of reps that percent of reps that make quota, yeah, you know, which is relatively low. Uh, yeah, anywhere forty to fifty percent right. we hear from reports every year. And I sort of draw the yeah. draw the analogy to like, yeah, you know, if you were a manager of a 
manufacturing plant that was manufacturing a product and you're only putting out a product that only worked 40 to 50% of the time, you wouldn't last long in that job. Yeah. Yet, no, yet, no. yet we tolerate that on no. the part of sales management. Well, you know, the VP of sales is over the years. If you think about it, most vice presidents of sales were top 20% intuitive territory salespeople. And they got the reason they got promoted is they sold more than anybody else. And eventually, if they get high enough, they start to realize that they've never been able to teach anybody under them to do it as good as they could do it. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And they start to realize because it's, it's intuitive for them. And I spent my sales training career trying to put a framework around that intuitive behavior from enough superstars that we can put together a model for connecting and building trust in the first few minutes of a relationship using story. Right. And it, it's, it's pretty miraculous. Well, and that, if that part doesn't go well, none of the rest of it does. And this is, this is, Again, None something I'm trying to, trying to impress upon people is the idea of, of connecting with another human being is that if you can't master that basic skill, if you can't uh, you know, establish that connection, build some rapport, again, you're not becoming friends, you're just building a basic human connection with somebody that leads yeah. to credibility and trust, starts in that first moment, and it could be doesn't necessarily be with, you know, with an SDR call. If you as an AE who's actually doing the selling, the first time you interact with that potential buyer, yeah, if you think it's not important, it's yeah. it's everything. It's huge. But here, here, here's the other thing we learned in the complex world is that our engineers had terrible people skills, right? <laughs> but they were really competent. Yes. So our engineers, initially, they had no connection. But after they solve problem after problem after problem after problem, pretty soon the customers love them, but they never could have been in sales because it took them four months to connect and build, <laughs> well, and but, build trust. Sure. I mean, it could, but I, I brought lots of engineers into sales over my career at tech companies, and none of them wanted to because they thought, I can't sell anything. And my proposition then was, well, yeah, you're not trying to sell anything. We're just trying to solve problems. And this is what you do for a living as an engineer. You you find a problem, you solve it. Then yeah. we're just doing that for customers. Oh, well, I can do that. Okay, well, that's all we need to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the paradigm shift, especially for engineer sales forces. Because, you know, a lot of these high-tech products, a majority of their salespeople are engineers, trained engineers. So I had an audience those guys once. They were all engineer salespeople, chemical engineers. And I said, how many of you had a mother that had a vision for you, her child, that you would grow up and have a career in sales? No hands went up. No. And then they started talking about how hard it was to tell their parents that after their parents invested in this four-year engineering degree in electrical engineering, right. That their sales, that their son's going to be a salesman. Oh, it's <laughs> it's excruciating. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't have quite that, but I yeah, similar response. I was an engineer, but yeah, I certainly I was the first one in my family to be in sales. I mean, no one really envisioned that was going to be there. But did your mother encourage you? Did your mother say when you were eight years old, Andy, when you grow up, you're going to be a great salesman? No, no, they were just focused on me getting through school, yeah. but, um, yeah, yeah, no, it's, I certainly, well, in my, in my family, my asshole father was a salesman. So none of us wanted to be salespeople. <laughs> yeah. No, mine was a quality control expert, a chemical chemist by training, yeah. quality control person. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think part of what we still struggle with in sales is that Sellers think that they're taking on this this persona when they become a salesperson that you know is partly trained in and partly yeah. reinforced, yeah. and yeah, you know, I, I sort of rebelled against it right up front in my career. Is you know I went to my first sales training class for Burroughs, yeah. which is a big company like Xerox at the time, 
And I remember sitting in the sales training thinking, well, I can't act this way. <laughs> that was the first thing. And the second question, I was like, what human, yeah. what human being acts this way? Because at least, you know, Xerox had a higher level yeah. of sales training than Burroughs. Burroughs was very, very salesy. And everybody thought that's why they wanted you to be salesy. And it was like, that's no. just, that wasn't me. The Xerox copier training PSS was very salesy. They, they wanted me to be a trainer and I went through it and I said, yeah, if you want somebody to teach that, find somebody else. I- yeah, yeah. And I just, and so I made this determination, you know, early in my career is that, well, I wanted to sell. I thought it was going to be fun. I liked this idea. We were, yeah, sort of the leading edge of the tech revolution and we were selling interesting products. It's, I want to be part of it, but I wasn't going to do it that way. And so I sort of found that, you know, people, and I yeah. presume you were the same way, is, is the people I know that had extended careers in sales and were always in sort of the cutting edge, yeah, did it in a way that aligned with their own value values as a human being. Absolutely. But, boy, I tell you, spending a little time with Neil Rackham when he was doing the research for Xerox right. really helped me start to think about how to codify behavior in a way that any engineer, any teacher, any human being could learn to do to connect. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, yes, I don't think it has to be purely intuitive. I think it could be learned. And we just have to do a better job of training people on this. Well, the beautiful thing is if the top 20% who do it or already sells great, if they could learn to do it consciously instead of unconsciously, their quality of life would go up immeasurably. They could probably work half as many hours, make more money because they'd be so much better. Yeah. Doing it on purpose than just winging it. Right. Well, and I, I've recommended this to people many times is, is think about it. If you're in sales at some point, I call it write your own sales book, but write down why what you do works, right? If you're having some success in sales. That's a big task, Andy. Well, I couldn't have done it. Well, no, but it's, a, it's yeah. a, I started, yeah, I didn't start early in my career. I started probably doing that 15 years into my sales career. And I started writing down. Yeah. What am I doing and why why do I think it works? And it's just notes, just by bullet. I've I've found it. What a- forced me to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you were writing a book. What You're- forced me to start writing that stuff down is when they made me a manager. Because I had one great year in sales, and they say, okay, Mike, you're a sales manager. And I went from hero to zero. I went from the number one sales rep to the number last manager. Because I had no clue how to impart and codify and teach these eight people that were working for me. I I didn't know how to do it. Couldn't teach it. Well, we don't make it easy for sales managers because I think that we don't, you know, I feel, even though I sometimes criticize sales managers, the point is they're not enabled to do what they need to do. You know, everything that we, everything we're learning as it, in either in the sales field or in other fields that relate to performance, uh, human performance, human potential, and so on, we don't translate into sales. And we, that's, some people are doing it now, but we don't enable our managers with this idea of, well, I, the knowledge about how to help people get better. We know how to tell them to do more. Uh, right. But and right. We're having all these yeah, wonderful tools and technologies like Ring DNAs. Uh, conversational artificial AI product and others that that provide managers ability to provide really great coaching, but we're not really coaching people how to coach. That's right. Well, you know, we're we're still doing sales workshops where we hit Zoom rooms now and we break them into group, small groups of three or four with a coach. And so, what we are mandating now, if we go into a new client, we say we want to. Put your leaders to the workshop first using our professional coaches. Mm-hmm. But then when your people go through, we want them to come back and coach their own people and learn to be a coach who can listen, who can ask about the call. Did he admit pain to you, Andy? How did he state it? Oh, that doesn't sound quite painful enough. I want you to go back and ask him a couple more questions. I mean, 
They don't know how to do that. So when we make them coach their own people, and we don't charge them again. We only charge them for when they took the course. Right. We want them to come back and be a coach. And no, nobody's ever taught them that in their whole career. Maybe they might be 45 years old and a sales manager. Sure. Nobody's ever taught them how to do that. No, I, I had a guest on my show last year who wrote a book about managers. He's a columnist in Inc. Magazine. And, and he had a statistic in his book research he had done that the, the average age that someone first receives management training was 49 years old. Think about that. Forty-nine oh. years old. That's horrible. Yeah, and it's this is this. Is I was getting it at thirty-one. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got my first management training at Burroughs when I was twenty-four, twenty-five, but it was like useless. <laughs> I mean, I literally can't remember a thing. From that. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. I. Yeah. I, yeah. I use this example a lot. Is that yeah? If we're spending. What's the number I've read is like $20 billion a year in sales training in the United States, of which I presume almost all of it goes to training individual contributors. What if we sort of flipped that on its head and said, Look, go, let's go spend 80% of that on training managers? I mean, I think we'd have much better outcomes because yeah. managers have the biggest impact on the individual contributors. You know, I was talking to a, a guy recently about what's the hiring model for the big ticket, you know, salesforce.com type salesperson. And, and he says it's finally starting to shift and become somebody softer than the, you know, type A, mm. close, 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 I'm going to bring in the deals. And then we, it slipped out and said, those guys are going to make great CEOs. <laughs> but because uh, they're going to be drivers and they're going to drive their organization. But if I could choose... The profession I hired out of, I think I would pick teachers. People who went into teaching mm -hmm. and now they're, you know, in, in America, they're, somebody in their family has a medical issue. They don't have insurance. They have to go out and make some more money. Mm -hmm. there, there's, there's some, but teachers are, they have the, the emotional mindset to try and help people learn, help right. people grow, you know. Bring them along at their own pace. I think, boy, if I could, if I could choose the hiring model for the big ticket enterprise sale, that's who I'd pick. And then I'd give them the uh, solution expertise. I'd right. you know make sure I, I they each knew you know the top twenty problems that we are really good at helping these people solve before I ever let them make a call. Is and have some stories. Some, oh, you're an operations engineer? Can I share a quick story with you about another operations engineer? Boom. Right. Yeah, I, I well, yeah, teachers tell stories, obviously. No, I think you're right, though. I mean, I, about teachers is, is yeah. and I think it's happened, actually, to some degree. When I started this podcast, over like the first 200 episodes, I asked almost every guest, you know, what they were doing before they were in sales. It was amazing how many had been teachers beforehand. Um, a lot of people. Good, good by that. You know. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have made that transition. I mean, certainly it's driven by economics, uh, maybe greater fulfillment, you know, variety of reasons. But I think you're right. I think it's a good background to, to have coming into sales. And the better we can teach people about how to talk around technology using analogies and using language that anybody past eighth grade could understand what we do. And then if you can have your messaging broke down at that level and then bring in former teachers, wow, you're going to change the uh, buying experience remarkably. Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, so last point, we're sort of running out of time, but I, mean, I just want to run this one by you because you know, you've been at this a long time is, is, this whole, again, this whole idea we talk about modern sales, and I sort of get tired of people talking about because you know, if you go look at uh, the sales stages of almost any company these days, the same sales stages they used to train you, you know, 50 years ago, right? right. So right. that's nothing new. Is, is why haven't we shifted to looking at the stages at the buyer stages, right? 
I mean, Gartner's done some research about jobs buyers do in the midst of a complex enterprise sale. Uh, yeah, very clear-cut, well-delineated. It seems to me like one of the tasks we have in sales is to shift. If we really want to be, quote-unquote, buyer-centric, is we should be measuring and sort of denominating our stages. They should be identical to the buyer stages because that's the only one that matter. Exactly. Exactly. Our pipeline milestones should be able to show us how far through their buy cycle each prospect is by different job titles. You know, this guy's got a vision, hasn't had proof yet. This guy's ready to sign tomorrow. You know, I mean, you've got different people and you have to be able to see where they are in their buy cycle, read it, and then kind of bring them the next bite. Right. Well, in the Gartner study, it's, and this is, example of using is, so they, Bob, buyer enablement, this is 2018, I think came out, is the first job buyer gets done is they define their problem. So we're in, a, we're in the sales stage, yeah. and I've never yet seen a sales stage you know, that, that has this, that says buyer problem definition, right? It's still discovery, qualification. I'm going to send you a couple of screenshots. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've done some of that, but it's, but in general, it's, yeah. it's like, I think until we, as a profession, especially in B2B and enterprises, until we shift to look at the world only through the buyer's eyes, right? If the buyer hasn't solved their problem yet, yeah. it doesn't matter if you think your time is ready to give a presentation. It's not going to work for them because you haven't understood what it is. The problem is that they're trying to solve and what the outcomes are they want to achieve. And you referenced this in your article on, on discovery resistances. We're trying to sell prematurely. That's the biggest problem I, I see in sellers yeah. is we make these assumptions about our buyers. Yeah, we know their personas. We know what they might be interested in. And we make assumptions about them. And so we jump into a selling mode before we understand what problem, uh, before we really help the buyer understand the problem they're trying to solve. Right. You know what I call that, right? No. Premature elaboration. <laughs> Premature elaboration. Yeah. It feels great to the salesman, but it doesn't always meet the needs of the buyer. Yeah. And it's just, it is, it's the big, I, yeah, it is, it is a major hurdle. Cause if you get into that mode, then what the buyer senses back to the point we started with, the buyer starts resisting, right? Yeah. If you're pitching me before yeah. you understand what my problem is, yeah. well, I'm going to resist that. And if you start that That's resistance right. mode early on, you severely diminish your chances of winning the business. I know. And let's say I go out and mess it up with you as my prospect. When I go back to the office, I still need to convince my boss that you and I have something going or he's going to tell me to leave you alone and go on to somebody else. And so the lack of ability to really um, debrief in 30 seconds... Mm -hmm. A sales call you know the what's the pain what's his job title how curious is he you know what did he react to few and put it on my voicemail I got sales managers now saying I want you to leave me a 30 second voice message after any call that you want that before you put it in the CRM system I want to know job title pain any vision so far, desire for proof, have you put it in an mm -hmm. email back to them yet? Answer those questions, you'll never hear from me. You just leave me a 30-second voicemail, I will be off your ass. But if you aren't giving me a good answer to those questions, I'm going to yeah. be on your ass. Yeah, I might add one or two to that, but uh, yeah, I like that. Oh, no, no, no. But, but it's, it's the whole idea of trying to more closely control the human behavior of our employees. Yep. We want them to behave in a way that maybe they didn't learn to behave that way growing up with mom and dad. And so now, you know, it's, <laughs> we're trying to teach new behavior. Well, yeah, and that's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely right, right? I think that, that without a whole other hour we could spend on this topic, which is that, yes, we make assumptions that sellers, that people we hire coming into sales – possess the basic human skills required to succeed in sales. And so what we do is we just train them to be sellers, and we really forget the fact that we should 
<laughs> train them how to be humans first. Well, you know, if you say, what percentage of your training budget is devoted to human behavioral training? Most people are going to give zero. you a big zero. Yeah, absolutely. Zero. Yeah, no, I agree. I think yeah. it's I think it's a big gap that's that's there. I talked to a company yesterday Good, that yeah. actually does some of that. Uh, they have a curriculum. They run people through sort of a three-week thing before sales training, but they were the first one I'd ever heard of. Yeah. Too many big companies are just living with mediocrity, Andy, day after day, quarter after quarter, year after year. Unfortunately, I think that's the case, and I guess that keeps us employed, trying to encourage them to change. Yeah, but it really is sad for people to kind of give up on growth and give up on excitement and give up on figuring out new ways to be better at whatever they do, where they're just putting in their time and collecting their money. Big difference. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I can't, I always speak for myself, but I mean, yeah, I mean, sales as a career has given me so much more than I could ever have imagined, right? In terms of uh, not just financial awards, but but people I've met, the things I've learned, the places I've traveled, uh the companies yeah. And, yeah, I've seen, and it's just, yeah. But you have to be willing to put in the... But if you think about it, effort. my first year in sales, where I went from never having done it before to number one in the country, I sold more in my first five months than anybody else had sold in a full year. And I went zero to hero. And man, I've never had... A year as fun as that year. The CEO would bump into me in the hall and say, hey, Mike, how much money are you going to make this year? Let's go to lunch and talk about it. I want to come along with you on your, the next one you close. The senior executives would be begging me to ride along so they could watch me close, right? But that was the greatest year of my life, financially, emotionally, everything. It was transformational. Yeah, mine didn't happen quite that quickly, but... Uh... Yeah, my second year was good. But first year, see, I would... I. Well, my second year, I went back to zero because they made me a manager. Yeah, well, well I'd, yeah, two years before I got promoted into management. My second year was good. But yeah, first year was uh, a lot of getting on my own way initially. <laughs> and then once I learned how to do that, then it got better. Yeah, my first year as a manager was a disaster, but I am a process-oriented guy. And my second year, I ended up managing the branch of the year at Xerox Computer Services. So yeah. I did figure out how to put some process to it. Yeah. 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 Well, again, that's part of what makes it fun. And I think that... that uh, it's fun. Yeah, I, mean, I think the fun... I'd rather be out solving, helping people solve exactly. big problems uh, by helping them make money and save money than by keeping them out of trouble as their litigator. Ugh. Can you imagine being a lawyer, you know, <laughs> having to fight for a living? Yuck. Uh, it's, Yuck. Yeah, well, one of my best friends, uh, attorney, and yeah, he, he thought he was going to be a litigator until just that. He said, I don't want to do this every day. Uh, but some people, yeah, it's like sales. It's not made for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. all right, Mike, we've run out of time, but it's a pleasure to talk with you as always. Uh, so, if people, Always fun, Andy. If people want to connect with you, best way to do that? Uh, LinkedIn, Mike Bosworth on LinkedIn, easy peasy. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, you're just enjoying life up in the Puget Sound, uh, growing your vegetables. It's all good. It's all, it's all good. good. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, I look forward, maybe, uh, as we start traveling more, maybe we'll get a chance to come up to Seattle. That'd be fun. Oh, I'd love to show you around if you got up here. Yeah. And, uh, I've got walking sticks. So I, I can get out and about a little bit and show you, show you around. Sounds great. All right, Mike, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am so grateful for, for your support of this show. And I want to thank Mike Bosworth for sharing his wisdom with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.